Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. All right, today we are going to continue uh, to, to go through, work our way through the, the, the letter of Colossians uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to Colossians chapter 3, or you can, of course, pull out your Bible app. If everything worked right with technology on my end, you should have the event in there available today in which all the sermon notes and the scriptures we'll be looking at are lined up, ready to go for you. So... Just a reminder, this church originally existed in Asia Minor. It was a, a moderately important city at certain times in history. By the time the church is here uh, in Colossae and Paul is writing this letter, it's kind of struggling with itself. It's, it's a pagan place. Uh, not a lot of resources necessarily as the roads kind of bypassed it. Uh, kind of like going from 19, you know, putting in 79, uh, 19 suffers. Well, Colossae experienced that uh, during the time of the early church age. And so uh, we have a church that has never met Paul before. He's never, never been there. And he's writing this letter because he's heard from close contacts of his that they are struggling with false teachers. And so we've already gone through and looked at the, the broad overview that, that God has established a kingdom through his son, Christ Jesus, that Jesus is the eternal king. And the pathway to citizenship is by faith through grace, paid for on the cross, proven in the resurrection, and that we are to live a specific style of life as those who have come into the kingdom. First, we have to understand that we will and should actually suffer for the sake of the kingdom. We should be willingly giving up ourselves for the sake of sharing the gospel and bringing new people into the kingdom of God. That we have a treasure that is beyond compare, and it is not hidden under your seats. It is instead Christ himself. We don't keep it in a safe down in the church office. It is the son of the living God who by faith is attainable, accessible, and readily available to all who would believe. And that brings us to the next place. If Christ is a treasure, the truth is, is that he is all you need. And then at the end of chapter two, we talked last week about bottom up living. And we talked about three different ways ways of living our own style of religious life, about doing, feeling, and denying, uh, where, where maybe we think that by doing good works or doing the right things or following the right rules, we'll be saved. And Paul says, that's false. Maybe if we pursue feelings and like if we really feel God's presence, then we'll know that we're, we're saved. And, and Paul says, that's not true. That mysticism and magis, magical arts and supernatural things are not the proof of salvation. It is instead Christ himself. And then, then he brings us to a place of, well, some people think that I'll be saved if I deny. In other words, I follow some, some things where I just don't do, right? Instead of doing, it's don't do. The, the rules of don't taste, don't touch, don't eat, that if I do some of those things, then maybe I'm saved. And, and Paul says that that is not the case, and that's not true in any way, shape, or form. And then chapter 2, the very last verse 
says this. Although these have a reputation for wisdom. So it sounds good. You know, these, these three things to do, to feel, and to deny. They sound good. They sound like, yeah, we should have to do that. But they're not meaningful. They have a reputation for wisdom because they they promote self-made religion, false humility, severe treatment of the body. But they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. In other words, they're of no real value in helping us to live out the Christian life. They're no proof of salvation. They're no means of salvation. It is Christ and Christ alone. And so today we're going to talk about, in chapter 3, Christ down living. We talked about bottom up living, trying to get our way into heaven by building towers of good works or feelings or denial and asceticism. And now we're going to do Christ down living is where Paul takes us as the right answer. So if those things don't work, what does? Well, it is this, to live in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.1. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, this is an interesting verse. And, and when we see if beginning a new line of thought... A question like this. So if you have been raised with Christ, when he says if, what is he implying? Well, the way this is structured in the original language, he is saying if you've been raised with Christ and you could kind of see it, the secret little aside. And I know you have if you believe in Jesus, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above In other words, if you are a genuine believer, and I know you are, because you've made that profession of faith, because you've chosen Christ as your king, because you have submitted yourself to him, (laughs) if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now we're going to get a little bit of doctrine in here, a little bit of extra special thinking. This last phrase, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I kind of want to look at the end of the verse first, and then we'll go back into what we're supposed to be doing. Because these things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, it, it, it paints a picture of where Jesus is today. Now... Some of us might struggle and make it, well, well, Jesus, let's see, he, he, he got a body, right? I mean, we know in, in the womb, Virgin Mary, 33 years or so, lived, died, then he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. Did, like, he shed his body? halfway up or something like the the, the disciples they're standing there they watch Jesus raise up into the clouds and then all of a sudden his body just kind of drops like no I'm I'm sorry I'm painting an absurd picture in my own mind I can just see this right it's just and and then you know you know the, the real Jesus went back to heaven no Jesus physically still exists in heaven he still exists in a body he is God incarnate even today is what scripture teaches us and this picture of Jesus in heaven seated at the right hand of God is one that fulfills certain promises and certain things that are are taught all the way back into the Old Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1 says this, David wrote this about the king who was to come. This is the declaration of the Lord God, Yahweh, to my Lord, my king. Sit at, uh, sit at my right hand until, until I make your enemies your footstool. 
so that there would come a time where this descendant of David would, would sit at the throne of God, right at the right hand of God himself, awaiting the day where time would be consummated, would come to an end, and this king would then be ruler over all, not just in uh, assignment, but in actuality. And so... What it is, is is Jesus is even now today seated at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the day where time comes to a close and he will return and assume his role as king over all creation. So he is king in truth, and the time will come where he will be king in actuality and physically upon this earth in a way that he has not yet been before. At the end of his life, <laughs> reaching up, I don't have any idea, Ed. Uh, uh, are we got conflicting uh, controls going on here, guys? I know, I know. I think it's demons. Um, do you... <laughs> There's a verse that talks about Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and we're using a cordless microphone. Satan, maybe? All right, so... Um, <laughs> We'll figure this out, or we won't, and we all understand that if this is what we have to suffer for Christ today, is struggling to hear or hearing too much, this is not nearly as bad as other brothers and sisters in other places and what they're suffering today for the name of Christ. So we see that, that Jesus gives us this, this statement uh, the night before he's crucified or in his trials leading up to crucifixion. It says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus was saying, predicting to the, the religious leaders who were ready to crucify him and would in fact crucify him in the next few hours, that from now on, this act, this is actually my, my, my coronation, and I will go to live at the right hand of the power of God from here on out, waiting the day where I return again. Acts 5.31, God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That we see all throughout the New Testament that the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry results in him physically being seated at the right hand of the throne of God in ruling power and authority in order to forgive sins and give repentance to all who would believe. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we see this repeated over and over again in scripture that Jesus, when his work was complete, the work of salvation was complete. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he abides in heaven even now, holding things together, purifying and, and, and saving and redeeming those he is calling out. And he sits down at the right hand of God, awaiting the day when he will return. Now, what is this about sitting down at the right hand of the Father? Now, you might say, so what is Jesus doing today? What is he doing today? He is today, right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. Seated at a throne of position and power and authority. So, and, and if you understand this culture, that to be seated at someone's right hand 
is to give them authority that is equal to yours and that they, they are able to represent you in, in totality. And so Jesus is the full representation of the power and authority of the Father. And the fact that he is seated is really cool because when do you sit down after a work day? Well, when everything's done, right? You don't sit down, well, some of us sit down throughout the work day. But when we're talking about physical labor, we're talking about a, an agrarian economy. When do you sit down? You sit down when the job is done. And so the fact that Jesus is seated speaks to the fact that his job is done. And so he's in a position of authority. In fact, not just a position, but the position of authority in representing the Trinity. And he is in a power place and he, he is stating that all the work is done and that all power and authority belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. And so to understand this, it, it is not that, that we've got some sort of, of, of a thing where Jesus is just hanging out in heaven. Hey, dad, when do I get to go back? Or, or something like that. It, it is instead, he is even now actively ruling and redeeming and in authority over all of creation. And he is seated because his work of redemption and paying the price and establishing his rule is done. We still await, though, his final return as king in reality, king in actuality, to, to physically come back and to reign. And we're going to talk a, a little bit more about that as we go on. Sorry, I changed my way of doing my slides, and now I don't like it. So give me half a second. Sermon, sermon, sermon. Won't load the sermon. Hmm. Technology's not our friend today. May the Lord bless and keep us, right? Um, it's okay. So here's what I'm going to have to do is scroll all the way back through to verse 3, verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, this, this is a conditional statement. If, that actually the, the answer is already right there in front of us. If, have you been raised with Christ? Yes, you have. How do you know you've been raised with Christ? Oh, it just did the thing I wanted. I don't know if you fixed something up there, Erica, but I like you today. <laughs> Sorry, that was just weird. If you have been raised with Christ, how do we know we've been raised with Christ? What's the evidence of having been raised with Christ? If we look back... In chapter 2, yeah, definitely fruit. Absolutely, we should see fruit. It's okay to yell things out. Uh, if, if, if microphones doing weird things and me doing weird things doesn't throw me off, then you yelling at me won't hurt. Uh, just yell nice things or Jesus, he answers. All right, so uh, last week we saw how, how do we know, how do we know that we've been raised up? Well, in, in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised you from the dead, when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. You see, we, 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 when we made that profession of faith, when we followed him in believer's baptism, when we established that he is the king of our life and we submitted to his rule and his reign, he saved us and he raised us up and he made us alive. 
And so in verse 3, Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ. So how many of you have been raised with Christ? Uh, We could do hands, and some of you are a little hesitant, not sure. Uh, I don't know. Jeff, if you can't raise your hands for this, you're not playing spoons. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry. I've made people look at Jeff twice now, and I'm going to pay the price for this. I'm so sorry, brother. Uh, But you you raised your hands in the first place. Uh, Anyway, so, so here's the deal. If you've been raised with Christ, well, if you followed him, if you submitted to him, if you've been baptized, you have been raised up. You've been brought to new life. You've been made alive in Christ Jesus. So stop doing this, these old ways of trying to reach God and instead understand you have been raised in Christ. So now seek the things above to seek is, it's a command here. It is not just, that we, it should actually be kind of an exclamation point here for those of us who read English. It should be, seek the things above. Like it's emphatic, it's imperative. It is, I want you to get this. I want you to stop thinking that religious rules save you. I, think, I want you to stop thinking that mystic feelings are how you get connected to God and live the Christian life. I want you to stop thinking that don't taste, don't touch, don't, don't consume is the means by which that you glorify God. And instead, I want you to stop seeking the things of this world and I want you to start seeking the things that are with Christ in heaven. Now, how do we do that? How do we seek? It's, it's an active, continuing, persistent pursuit. It, it is an ongoing thing. The way that this word seek is in the original language, first it's a command, and then it's an ongoing, all the time, every morning, everything you do, activity, to seek the things above. So what are the things above? Well, the things above are specifically those things which are in the heart and mind of God, those things which glorify him, those things which he has commanded us, those things which he says are important. Verse 2, it it moves on, and, and Paul says this, not only are you supposed to seek those things that are in the presence of Christ, but you're also to set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. This same phrase, set your minds, is a command. It's a non-negotiable. What's interesting in scripture is that when we read it in the English, oftentimes we think of it as just like a happy encouragement. Like you opened a a card for today, and and when when God says this to us in his word, that, um, uh, that you are supposed to seek the things above and to set your mind on things above, we read it and go... Oh, that's an encouraging word for the day. Thanks, God. I'm going to work hard to think good thoughts. Like, like it, that and a little bit of fairy dust and you're going to fly. Right? And, and that's not what God is, is saying to us through his word. We, we, we're kind of missing the force of this because we don't, in, in, in English, we don't have a clear read here that these are commands. And when you are given a command by scripture, what should you do? Do it. Obey. Those are the only two choices when you're given a command are to obey or disobey. And if God's word speaks it to you and says this is the way for you, believer, doesn't it make sense to obey? Because to disobey is what? 
We might call it uh, this one word, yeah, sin. <laughs> Three letters, begins with S, ends with N, has an I in the middle, sin. And so when we're talking about these things, this isn't a, a, a cheery, hey, to make your day better, think about godly things. But Christian, because you are raised up to a new way of life, change where you're looking. Stop looking at the things down here and begin to seek and set your minds on things above, not earthly things. And so really what, what we're talking about here is not, not like looking up to the sky all the time and saying, oh, heaven's going to be so nice. But instead to do this, to begin to look at the world, not in the way that Jesus would look at it, but to look at the world through the lens that Jesus gives us himself. It's interesting. I didn't used to have to wear glasses, <clears throat> but now I do. And, and what do glasses, those of you who have them and you're wearing corrective lenses, whether the little ones you stick inside your eye like a freak or the ones you wear on your nose, when you wear corrective lenses, what do they do for you? They help you see the world clearly, don't they? I, I can't tell you how embarrassing it was for me to be in Walgreens and to, to be standing there reading my phone and wondering what's wrong with my phone. The screen is so blurry that I clearly need a new iPhone. And then I look and I'm at the end of the aisle waiting at the pharmacy right there by the reading glasses. And I go, well, pff, I mean, this won't work. Picked up a pair, put them on. My phone was fixed. All of a sudden, I could see clearly, right? What, what was blurry, what was difficult to understand, I could see clearly. And, and we have this tendency to continue to look at the world in, in, and to go, it doesn't make sense, it's unclear, I'm confused. And, and here, the whole time, Jesus is standing there and saying, put me on, seek me, seek these things that are mine, look through me. And I will bring you clarity. And no, I don't, I don't need that. I'm going to try my thing. Hold it further away. Buy a new phone. No, put me on, Jesus says. The sad thing is, is that Christians oftentimes don't do that. Uh, we don't follow these two commands to seek and to set our minds on Christ himself. To see the world through Christ. To allow him to be our lens. And what's going to happen here as, as we move through the rest of chapter 3. These, these four verses are the introduction to what might be for some of us a completely different way of seeing our world. And when we understand that this new way of seeing is not negotiable. This isn't if you feel convicted, do this. This isn't if you want things to be better, do this. That when we read from chapter 3 here, this beginning on, where he tells us to seek and to set your mind on the things of Christ, those heavenly things that he's going to reveal to us in the coming verses, it's not if you want to, it's you must. You must Seek to see the world this way. You must set your mind on Christ. What we would call this in an academic sense is a biblical worldview. To take and, and realize that your, your way of seeing the world is flawed. 
and that you need a corrective lens. And so you, you put on Christ in order to see the world clearly. The glasses that you put on, from an academic standpoint, we would call it a biblical worldview. The way you see the world. And, and the way you see the world should be defined by Christ and his word and his ways. There's an organization called the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. They did a survey earlier this year And here are the results when it comes to a biblical worldview. Only 4% of Americans have a biblical worldview. 4% of people around us have put on Christ as the means of seeing their world. They're looking through Christ and his word and his truth and his ways in order to see and clarify and interpret what's going on around them. Only 4% of Americans. And many of us, as we sit in our comfy chairs here in church, we might look around and go, oh, those dirty pagans out there, of course they don't believe right. Only 6% of people who call themselves Christians have a biblical worldview. Which means, what are we, maybe 60, 70 in here today? I don't know. I'm a senior pastor. Of the 500 people in here today. <laughs> but that, that means out of every, every 100 people, only six Christians in church. Every 100 people in church, only six of them have a genuine biblical worldview where they see the world through the lens of Christ Jesus. Now, some churches, there's going to be more. And some churches, there's going to be far less. But the the truth is, is even here today, as faithful as I know many of you are seeking to be, you do not possess a biblical worldview. You keep looking at the world through your own desires, through your own ways, through the things that your parents taught you. You are looking at the world wrongly. And Jesus and his word, they're going to clarify what it means to look at the world. Now you might go, well, well what about you know, born-again Christians? What about Christians like us? Statistically, only 13% of born-again Christians have a genuinely biblical worldview. Now, this is because we get these commands to seek and to set our mind, and we think that they are a greeting card encouragement. If you want to, your day to be better, Try and look at the world the way Jesus did. But these are commands. And it's not if you want to be better, or you want your world to be better, or you want to have a better day. It is if you are raised up to new life, you should daily follow this command to continually strive to see the world through Christ. To make him the lens that clarifies the way that you think and respond to things around you. The way that you view politics and marriage and your work and the children around you should be through the eyes and interpretation of what Christ gives, not through what the culture has given us. And sadly, even in here, only 13% of us have a view that is biblical. Jesus speaks to this himself. And he says this. 
In, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33, he, he's talking about worry and anxiety, but it, it speaks to us directly because why do we hold on to the way that we see the world? through our own desires, through our culture, through our politics. Why do we hold on to it? Because it freaks us out to think about changing things to line up with the word of God. And I mean, that's me too. A struggle. It freaks us out. And Jesus says this, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. We, we could just stop there and, and pause and just, just say, what does he mean by that? Well, he means what he says. Don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Aren't you? Do you believe that you're worth more than the birds? You are. And yet... You don't trust God to provide for you like he provides for them. Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? No. And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? The answer to that question, won't he do much more for you? Yes. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And then in verse 33, here's the command that Jesus gives. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Do do you hear that? This is the same kind of command that Paul is giving. He says, seek the things of God first. Seek me first. Seek my ways. Seek to see the world through me first. And trust me, will things be perfect and absolutely in line with all of your expectations and all of what culture says? No, not necessarily. But what will you have? You will have the food you need for the day, the clothes you need, the house that you need to live in when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When you set your mind on the things of God, those things that are heavenly, Christ himself, and allow him to be the lens through which you see the world. Verse three, because... Why is this so important or why is this possible for us as Christians? For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, you are already dead? Now, what do we mean by that? What are you dead? You're dead to sin. You're dead to the old way of living. 
When you followed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and when you, f- you, you followed him in believer's baptism, that was your declaration. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to the old way of life. And I've been raised up into brand new living. Which is why baptism is so beautiful and so critical in the life of every believer. Because it's that moment that we look back on and say, I know I was raised up to a new life. I don't have to be subject to sin anymore. You died. You're dead. But this new life that you have, it's in Christ and Christ alone. And so it is hidden with him in God. Uh, up, where, where is Christ? He is in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where your life is. That's where everything you need is. Because you're dead to the things of this world. Everything is in Christ. And so when he defines, when he says, when he gives direction, when he tells you how to see the world, it shouldn't be optional. Because he is your life. And he is the one that tells you what this life is to be lived like and what glorifies him and and what edifies you. Here's the, the joy. We are raised up to spiritual life today. Even now, we are alive in Christ and our life is hidden in him. That's why we seek That's why we search in him because in him alone is life. And we are raised up to new life today. We are genuinely alive in Christ Jesus. And so we look to him and his ways and heaven to define how this new life should be lived. And then verse four, when Christ just to remind you in case you forgot from the previous verse, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, Paul, Paul is looking forward with, with the, the whole church and saying that you've already been raised up spiritually to a new life today, and it's in Christ Jesus, and he is in heaven even now, and your whole life centers and revolves around him and flows from him and his goodness and his glory. But... There is something that is yet to come. You have been raised to new life spiritually today, but there is a day coming where you will be raised to life physically and finally when he returns. You are victorious and alive today, and you will be even more victorious and alive in the day to come when Jesus returns. He's essentially saying, do this because you got nothing to lose. Everything you need is in Jesus. And you have the promise that even if today things don't physically go the way that you wanted or expected or hoped, there is a day that is coming where everything will be restored and perfected physically and finally, even as it is spiritually today. We have so much to look forward to. Paul's trying to get our perspective off of ourselves and looking down and say, I need to do this. I need to think this. I need to walk this way and say, look up to Jesus and allow Jesus to define your life because you're already alive in him and you're going to be even more alive in him 
someday soon. First Thessalonians, another letter that Paul wrote to a different church, says this in chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the, the, the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The day is coming, and it's closer today than it was when this was written. The day is coming that Jesus will physically return. That there will be a shout, there will be a declaration, there will be a trumpet. The dead in Christ will be resurrected to new life first. And then all of us who are still alive, we will be caught up in the air. We will join Christ who will return to rule as king over all of creation. Even as he rules spiritually now in heaven, he will rule physically that day. And we have this to look forward to. This is supposed to be encouraging to us that we look forward to the day that Jesus is going to come back and make everything right. And Paul's telling us, because we know this is true, whatever happens today in submission to him, whether good or bad, it's worth living in his ways, seeing the world through Christ. It's worth it because ultimately, even if today goes wrong, we win and we will be raised up to life abundant and forevermore. So these first four verses that we have here in Colossians. So if you have been raised with, uh, Colossians 3, so if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. If I were to sum it up, I'd just say it this way, that love and devotion toward the heavenly Christ will impact every aspect of your life, which will find its fulfillment. Your life will find its fulfillment at his return. And so... Pursuing Christ above all else to allow him to be the lens through which you see the world and allowing his word and his ways to define how you approach everything. It will be a blessing. It will impact every aspect of your life. And Paul's going to talk about it here. He's going to tell us how it impacts our, our families, our marriages, our church life, our relationship with society at large. And one day, every choice we make to live through Christ will be blessed and we will find absolute fulfillment when he returns. Life today and even better life when he comes again. And so a couple of questions for you. A couple of questions. And, and these aren't ones where I want you to stand up and make a commitment or come forward and you know, sign a pledge card. I want you to think about this. Will you actually begin the process with me of making a commitment of using the things of Christ as your lens for viewing life? Because he is going to start throwing some things at us. We're going to start having the, the, the vision, our, our, our sight, the way that we see the world is going to be corrected slowly over the next few weeks as we go through the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. And you might be offended, and you might nod when you hear some things he says and say, yeah, some people need to do that. 
But when it talks about you, you're going to be like, oh, no, I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's just an option, right? No, these are commands. Seek and set your mind. And he's going to tell us what to seek and set our mind on. He's going to tell us what the lens that is Christ looks like and how it will shape our perceptions. Will you commit to that? Will you, seriously, are you really ready as a Christian to be what you're supposed to be and what you were saved to be instead of allowing our modern cultural Christianity to dictate to you that you don't really have to? It's just a want to thing. Because these are commands that are going to come. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to work on trying to understand things. So, so here's, here's what we do. I, I, and th- this is not today. I got the whole list for you. Understand, this is going to unfold over the next few weeks. But the challenge, especially summer, uh, I know we're not quite to summer yet. That's like Memorial Day usually. But it already started, right? Because the sun's out today. And it, the temperature has already been over 80, which means summer has officially started, which means even Christians are thinking more about lakes and trails and family and vacations than they are about church and Jesus. On the whole. And so I'm asking you to, 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 to do something for me. I'm not asking you not to go anywhere this summer, but if you're serious about committing to using the things of Christ as the lens for viewing life, to consider this summer to make a commitment to three things. Three things. Attend regularly. That means you're going to have vacations. Guess what? I'm going to take a vacation this summer. I'm going to take a vacation this summer. I'm going to go away a couple times. Uh, There'll be other people preaching. I'm not going to tell you ahead of time just so you don't think you have an excuse to not be here. But but I'm going away this summer. I'm going to miss a couple Sundays because this is what we do in the summer, isn't it? But there are Sundays where I'm going to wake up and the weather's going to be nice and I got this garden. The beans just started to sprout. I'm going to have some beans, man. I'm going to have I'm going to have tomatoes. I'm going to have squash. The squash plants are already this tall. I'm going to have squash, man. It's going to be a good season. God is going to bless my family with some food out of my backyard, right? And there are going to be Sundays I'm going to wake up and the garden looks like it needs some time. And the weather's perfect. It's been raining all week or it's been way too hot. And Sunday morning is perfect. And you know what I'm going to be tempted to do? Call in lazy, right? Now, you might go, but you're the pastor. You can't do that. <laughs> really? So if I call Don and Steve and go, guys, I just don't feel good. I got a terrible headache. <laughs> and I, a little bit of a cough. Do you think they'd go to me? They, they wouldn't say to me, are you sure, Michael? I think you're faking. They'd be like, oh, brother, we'll be praying for you. Rest. You know what I'd be doing then? Out in the garden. You don't think they'd, they'd yeah. I could get away with it, too. But I'm saying, I have all week to do it. You're right. I can't miss this hour a, day, hour a week that I work anyway. So uh, anyway, all that to say, you, you guys get the picture, don't you? I, I understand vacations are going to happen. Times away is going to happen. But every Sunday you can be here, be here, attend regularly. Don't let the weather distract you. Uh, 
I realize morning is better than afternoon sometimes, but don't let the weather distract you. Don't let the beauty of the creation distract you. Be faithful here. If you really want to see what God's word has to say about how you're supposed to see and live your world, attend regularly. Listen attentively. It's a big challenge for many of us. Don't stay up too late Saturday night this summer. Right? Don't party too hard on the boat Saturday so that when Sunday morning comes and you're here, it's hard to stay awake and focus. But attend regularly and listen attentively. And then this is going to be the hard one. The really hard one is to seek how you might apply faithfully what you finally see clearly through the lens of God's word and the lens of Christ. So this is a challenge. I'm not asking you to sign any commitments. I'm not asking for you to raise your hands or come forward. I'm asking you to potentially just sit there and consider making a commitment to yourself, to the rest of your family together that we will do these three things. Seek to attend regularly, to listen attentively, and to apply what God's word has to say faithfully. Apply will likely be the hardest one. You're right. Other than the listening attentively, I know that uh, I sometimes go a little long and that nap is so, so compelling at any given moment. So I know, it's okay. I don't take it personally. Um, I'd rather an honest nap than a a hypocritical, uh, you know, wide awake. So um, (laughs) will you consider this summer to listen and to to attend regularly, listen attentively and apply faithfully? Because we've we've got some ways, some things to change in how we see the world. And it's only by looking through Christ that we'll be able to do that. I want to invite you guys. the, The beautiful thing about Christ is he did so much for us and gave so much that we might be his, that we might see the world through him. And so I want to invite you to partake of me this morning of the Lord's table. And every time that we partake of this, we, we partake of the cup, which reminds us of the blood of Christ, by which our, our sins are washed away and, and he has sealed the covenant. And it reminds that we, we partake of the bread, which reminds us of his body, which was given for us, in which he suffered and paid the price for sin. And so every time we take this, we remember him. And and as you remember him this morning through the bread and the cup, I I want you to to think about not just remembering him in some way out there, but remember how you used to maybe have a passion when you were first saved. Remember what he meant to you when you first understand that he freed you and brought you back to life. Some of us have been Christians for far too long, and we have forgotten the importance of our Christ. I want you to remember that he wants you to put him on as a lens through which to see the world. And that he he died for your forever, but he died for your today too. And he wants today to be different, even as you look forward to forever. And so today we will partake of the Lord's table together and to, to turn our eyes toward him and remember him in all that he did for us. And so I'm gonna pray and then ask you guys to just come forward and receive your elements, take your elements back to your seat with you, and then we will partake of them together after everyone has received them and returned to your seats. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you love us so much that you did not allow us to remain wayward and rebellious, but instead you loved us so much that even while we were still sinners, your enemies... You sent your son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died 
a perfect sinless life as a perfect sinless sacrifice so that our sins might be forgiven, that we might die to the old way of life and be raised up into new life. And so today, we ask that you would bless this bread and this cup and that as we partake of it in the coming minutes, that we would remember our Jesus. So we pray that his genuine and abiding presence might be on these elements, that we can partake of him fully and and understand him fully and appreciate him more fully and what he did for us. And so as we enter into this time, help us, Lord Jesus, to remember you. In your name we pray, amen. So if you just want to come to the center aisle and come forward and get your elements, return to your seats here in a moment. We'll partake of them together as church family. Uh, I've got a song with some lyrics to play while everybody's coming forward. So uh, if we can get the computer turned on and turned up a little bit. Would you come and receive your elements and then we will partake of them together after everyone has them.
pull the music down. I was trying, there you go, you got, ah, perfect. I was doing my Jedi thing and Ed couldn't decide if I was trying to force choke him or uh, ask him to turn the music down, so it was cool. Said the problem when you get two nerds trying to communicate via visual stuff, you never know exactly what you're talking about. So um, just want to say that uh, communion is such a beautiful experience when we get to, uh, to partake, partake of it together. And, and, and the Apostle Paul writes of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the body of Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your body, you paid the price for our sins. That in you and your death, we are made alive to righteousness. We also thank that in your body, you You lived a perfect and sinless life. And by it, we are now clothed in your righteousness. Your good works, your perfection. When we believe on you as Savior and King. Are now ours to be clothed in. And so we thank you for all that you did. In your body given for us. In your name we pray. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Our precious Jesus, we are so thankful that your shed blood removes the stain of sin, removes our guilt. And so you have both taken the punishment and wiped away the guilt of that sin that used to separate us from you. Thank you for paying such a high price, for giving so very much. And we thank you that you were so serious about this promise that whoever believes should have new life that you sealed that promise, that contract with your blood, declaring that you loved us so much that you gave of yourself. And we are thankful for that. And so this morning, Lord Jesus, as we share in your body and we share in the blood that was shed for us, may we remember you and be bold enough in these coming weeks to put you on as the lens through which we see the world. No longer trying to live up to our own standards or expectations, but instead following wholeheartedly after you. I pray that as we're challenged about what to take off and what to put on in these coming days and weeks, that we would hear your commands with tender and sensitive hearts, knowing that what you tell us does not come from a place of condemnation and judgment, but instead of love and redemption. And so I pray for all my brothers and sisters and myself that as we come to these moments 
of gathering together that we would be convicted to be faithful. As we come to these moments of hearing your word, challenge us that we would walk in obedience. And more than anything, that in these coming days and weeks and months, as you change us and shape us and help us to see our life in you, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified in all that we are and do. This morning we worship you. And in your name we pray.